We're going to look at a very famous parable from Jesus. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you have any sort of church background, you'll be familiar with this story. Uh, Even if you don't have a church background, you'll probably be very familiar with it as it's one of these things that's often taught in RE classes in school. Um, But whilst it is... um, very familiar, probably the most familiar teaching of Jesus, I do think it is one of the most misunderstood. Um, It's one of these parables that's often plucked out of its context, and, and most people, I guess, wrongly assume that this is Jesus' teaching on how to be nice. Um, so what I want to do this morning is to redeem this passage from the the felt board illustrations of the Sunday school class and look at what it really means. This is a a passage that reveals to us the folly of us trying to earn our way into God's kingdom through our good deeds. And it's a passage that shows us a standard of love that all followers of Jesus should be striving for. It is extremely profound, it is uncomfortably exposing, and it is utterly unique. So let's look at this teaching. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, Luke's gospel is written really for for one purpose. He tells us right at the start why he wrote this account of Jesus' life. It's to give us certainty. Luke wants us to be absolutely sure and absolutely certain about who Jesus is, about what Jesus taught, and about what Jesus achieved. In the first nine chapters of Luke's gospel, he lays out for us the the identity of Jesus. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, we get the turning point in the gospel. After Jesus explains to his disciples that he is going to suffer and die, he turns his face towards Jerusalem, and he begins walking to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the place where he is going to be crucified. 
And as Luke records for us Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from chapters 9, verse 51, all the way through to chapter 19, we see in this section teaching from Jesus as to what it looks like to follow him. What does it mean to follow this Savior? What, what does it look like to follow him on the path to the cross? That is what Luke wants us to be certain of. Now, at the start of Luke chapter 10, you can just see the headings there. We see that the first kind of key element in following Jesus is that we are missionaries. We are to be on mission. We are to do evangelism. That is one of the essential hallmarks of being a follower of Jesus. And in this section that we get here from uh, verse 25 to 37, I think we see one of the key defining features that mark out followers of Jesus, and it's love. Love has always been the most core, essential element in the Bible to being a Christian. It's to be a distinguishing mark of the church of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples that the world will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It is at the heart of what it means to follow him, to obey him. He says to his disciples elsewhere that if you love me, you will obey my commands. There is a love and a gratitude that that we are to have as Christians for God our Savior, and that is to overflow into a love for others. But the problem is that when we talk about love being at the heart of the, the Christian life, which it is, we so often, I think, misunderstand and either undervalue what that means. We, we either make it this kind of sappy, sentimental thing that, that lacks any real substance or value, or we, we over-moralize it to thinking that if, if I'm nice, God must like me, or we can undervalue it and downplay the impact of what it means, all of which are wrong. But this is where this amazing teaching from Jesus can help us. Love your neighbor. That is the fundamental ethic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But what exactly does that mean, and what should that look like? Well, this is where this teaching from Luke really helps us. Let's look. There's an outline on your service sheet there. Let's look firstly at the wrong approach to this command, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, before he goes on to to talk about what it looks like in this parable, sets this parable in its context. Uh, Verse 25, we have a, a lawyer who approaches Jesus with a question to try and trap him, says to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, Jesus, tell me, what do I need to do in order to be accepted by God? But he is uh, not asking this question out of curiosity. Rather, he's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to catch Jesus out. Um, Never a wise thing to do, by the way. And so Jesus flips it around and says to him, well, you're the expert in the law. You're the lawyer. What does it say in the law? You tell me. And this lawyer replies with with an excellent summary of what the entire Old Testament law, all 600 laws in the Old Testament, this is what they are all about. It's an excellent summary. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's what it, what it looks like to be a Christian. Let the entirety of your being be filled with love for God, all your intellect, all your reason, all your emotion, all your willpower and consciousness are to be saturated in, a, in God's love. And that, in turn, 
should transform you to be utterly selfless and loving others the way that you would love yourself. That is the ethic of the Bible, of the Old Testament law, of everything that the gospel stands for. And so Jesus says to him, okay, that's a great answer. Go and do it. Now, when Jesus says that to this lawyer, I don't think he expects that the lawyer will do it. In fact, the lawyer himself seems to be pretty sure that this standard that he has just kind of summarized is so great that that he can't do it. Which is why, if you look at verse 29, it's why Luke tells us there that he tries to justify himself and asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? So in other words, the lawyer thinks, okay, loving God, that's okay, I guess I get that, but, but loving my neighbor as myself? Surely that can't mean loving everyone. I mean, that's impossible. Who is this neighbor that I am meant to love? In other words, what he's saying there to Jesus is, Jesus, what is the bare minimum I would need to do to keep that command? Why? Because this lawyer thinks that if he can do good things, then somehow he can earn God's favor. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. If he does enough, then he thinks he can inherit that. And I reckon today that if, if we were to go out onto the streets of Morningside, and if we were to ask people here in Morningside why they should inherit eternal life, what do you think most people will say? Well, I'm a good person. They'll speak of their deeds, and, and they'll, they'll justify themselves. I've done so many good things. Surely if if God is there, he should give me eternal life because I am fundamentally a good person. And that is an attitude which I think is not just prevalent in in secular society, but that is the, the teaching of every major religion in the world bar Christianity. If you can do enough good things, you can inherit eternal life. And we love to justify ourselves And we we do so often by creating a standard or a law that we feel that we can achieve. We we justify ourselves by by comparing ourselves to others who who are morally not as good as us. Well, at least I'm not like them. And we justify ourselves by telling God, this is the standard, and this is why you should accept me. And if that's you here this morning, if you're here and you're maybe just investigating Christianity, maybe even in church for the first time, And if you think that God will accept you because of how good you are, you need to know this. You will never inherit eternal life. Never. Because our standards are not God's standards. His standard is one of perfect love, and it's a standard that we all fall short of, which is why if you were to read through Luke's gospel, and I would recommend you do that if you haven't already, you would see that Jesus teaches the opposite. He teaches that we can't do anything to inherit eternal life. There is only one way for us to be saved, and that is through the initiative of Jesus himself. That's why Luke's favorite word to describe Jesus in his gospel is Savior. So he's always calling Jesus. He is the Savior. That is what he has come to do, to to save us from our sin, to save us from our wrongdoing, and to bring us back to God. We do nothing. He does everything. I mean, 
just to show you, look at the section that immediately precedes this encounter that Jesus has with the lawyer. Look at verse 21. The 72 disciples have just been on mission, and um, they've just come back rejoicing. And this is what Luke says in verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. So you can't know Jesus except God the Father. Luke goes on, or Jesus goes on and says, no one knows who the Father is except the Son. So you cannot know God without Jesus. And Jesus continues, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You can't know God. You can't inherit eternal life unless Jesus takes the initiative unless Jesus chooses to reveal him. You see, this lawyer is the person described in verse 21. Someone who is wise and has understanding. And yet the gospel message of salvation through Jesus alone is hidden from him. He thinks it's about what you can do. He doesn't get it. And he doesn't get it because he doesn't really actually understand the law the purpose of the Old Testament law. When you see this incredibly high and impossible standard of God's law, you were meant to strive for that, but you were never to think that you could save yourself through obedience to it. If you did, that would crush you because the standard is too high. So he needs to justify himself. The lawyer lawyer tries to to lower the bar rather than than asking, how can I love my neighbor as myself? His, His question is, well, who must I love? How can I make this standard lower? It's ironically and incredibly selfish and unloving, isn't it? And what does Jesus say in response to that? Jesus says, let me tell you a story. That's how masterful he is as a teacher. Let me tell you a story. Now, I think there's two purposes to this parable. Firstly, it's there to expose the religious hypocrisy of the teachers of Jesus' day, uh, like this lawyer, in their attempts to try and soften the commands, um, the command to love your neighbor. So he's trying to expose the folly of doing that and the religious hypocrisy of these people. But secondly, I think it is here as well to give us a standard of loving love for others, that all followers of Jesus are to strive for. Remember, this is Luke's teaching on what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Don't try and put hedges around the law of loving your neighbor. Strive for the standard that Jesus sets. That's the second point we see, the right approach to loving your neighbor. So, Jesus begins. He tells the story of a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, Now, this road that that Jesus talks of was famous at the time for being one of the the most dangerous places in the region. Uh, It was literally known as the Pass of Blood. Um, It would be like the equivalent of, I don't know, walking through Dundee, anywhere in Dundee. Um, And that's what this area was like. You simply would not do it. But this guy, he walks down it for whatever reason. And as he does, he is uh, mugged and beaten. And he's lying there half naked and half dead. And as he is lying at the side of the road, Jesus speaks of a priest that walks by him in verse 31. Now, 
the priest gets a bad rep. We've got to be careful here. I think when we ever read this parable, we always think, yeah, we'd be like the Good Samaritan. We wouldn't be like um, the kind of religious hypocrites here. Uh, I wouldn't be so sure about that. The priest gets a bad rep, but do you see, he's actually quite smart. When you're walking down the road and there's a guy lying there half dead, do you know what that means? It means that the robbers who did this are probably very close by. And the priest knows that, that helping this guy will mean that he is putting his life at risk if he goes and helps him. He could potentially get mugged himself. Not only that, if he was to go near this body, it would make him ceremonially unclean and he wouldn't be fit to do his duty as a priest. So his job would be at risk. And similarly, the, the Levite, a Levite was just like an apprentice to the priest in those days, sees this man and also walks by him. So Jesus picks out two people. You can see the lawyer getting uncomfortable at this point. Two people that were kind of beacons of moral uprightness. And he shows how they have failed in the very fundamental aspect of loving your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus introduces a new character that would have shocked the original hearers. A Samaritan. Now, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I mean, they really despised each other. Just earlier in Luke chapter 9, um, Jesus' own followers asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan town. I mean, that really tells you something about how much they disliked them. They, it's, it's hard to emphasize. This would be like having someone um, from Israel having I guess having someone from Hamas as the hero of their story or, or someone from the Orange Order having uh, somebody from the IRA as the hero of their story. Rabbis at this time used to teach that you shouldn't even pray for a Samaritan to have forgiveness. They were despised. And that is the person that Jesus uses as his example of neighborly love, the most unlikely person, the one person who would have walked past a dying Jewish man is the one who helps. And do you see what he's doing? He is flipping this lawyer's understanding of loving your neighbor completely on its head. He's saying, you religious hypocrites, you don't get it. Your idea of limiting God's law so that you can keep it is so wrong and so twisted that I'm going to tell you a story in which those who don't get it are the religious legalists. And the person who does get it is the one that you would despise most. The Samaritan, the despised one, he is the example of neighborly love. And here in him, I think for us today, we see three big things about what loving our neighbor should look like. Firstly, loving your neighbor is to be unconditional. Jesus is choosing a Samaritan so showing to show that there's absolutely no boundaries that you are to put on this command. He picks two radically opposed people groups and shows that loving your neighbor is not defined by race, it's not defined by nationality, it's not defined by gender or proximity or even theology. Loving your neighbor is to be for anyone who is in need, regardless of who they are and regardless of what they believe. Now, we've got to be careful here because we, we live in a society which claims to be very tolerant, but I actually think is incredibly intolerant. And we think today that, 
that to love people, you have to affirm everything they believe. That's not the teaching of the Bible. We don't affirm people who go against the teaching of the Bible. We don't do that. And if you claim to love your neighbor, but you go against what the Bible teaches, you don't actually love God. You don't love your neighbor. You love yourself, and you love your reputation, and you love how you appear to people. See, loving your neighbor is, regardless of what you believe, even if I can tell you it's wrong, I'm going to tell you it's wrong, but I still want to love you and help you as best as I possibly can. That's real love. And what we tend to do, though, is we tend to try and maybe put some conditions on it. We show love and compassion to those who are nice to us, to those who can give us something in return, even if it's just an affirmation of how loving we are. Don't love those who annoy us. That, that person who is just in my personal space all the time, that person who's just going on and on about their struggles, that person that's just mean-spirited, we, we love those that we find easy to love, but simply tolerate, I guess, those that we don't like. That is not loving your neighbor as yourself. If people dislike or even hate me, that should not stop me loving them. Unconditional compassion is to be the hallmark of all followers of Jesus. And when we think here of Chalmers, when we think of our our church family, we don't just befriend and care for those um, in the church whom we like, but we try and we need to be aware of who here is in need And some people here, they they, they won't be beaten up or bankrupt, but maybe they just feel isolated or alone. Maybe just the simple act of inviting them around for dinner or just hanging out with them. Not the people you would normally hang out with, but just hanging out with them. That could be an act of compassion that will have a profound effect on someone's life. Don't just get to know people like you. Get to know as many people as you can so you can ask yourself, who's in need here? And how can I help? But be careful because I guess another way we try and limit this command is to think, well, I'll help people only when their need is at its greatest, only if they are really struggling. Now, do you see how wrong that is? Look at the command, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Do you only help yourself when you're in extreme destitution? Of course, of course you don't. So don't do it to others. Always be mindful. Always be alert. When when we come to church, when we look out for one another, what are the needs here? How can I show compassion to these people? And you're starting to feel the weight of this. You can feel yourself almost trying to justify yourself. Secondly, loving your neighbor is costly. Why is it that the priest and the Levite didn't help this man? They didn't help him because it would have been too costly. Ah, yes, they would have said they were righteous. Maybe they did good stuff. Maybe they even gave to the poor. But they had a kind of passive righteousness, a a righteousness that says, well, I've never done anyone any harm. But it's not so much about what you do. It's about what you don't do. Loving your neighbor as yourself will involve great cost to yourself. Look at the Samaritan. Look at what he does. He puts his life at great risk, first of all, by stopping to help this guy. Verse 34, he cares for his wounds. 
he puts him on his animal. It doesn't say donkey, like the felt board illustrations, it just says animal. Could be anything. He puts him on his animal, takes him to the inn. He pays two days' wages for the innkeeper to care for him as best as possible. It was costly. If you really are to love your neighbor as yourself, it will cost you. And again, just just thinking about our church community here, for some of us, it will cost us money. I mean, I would hope that if people who are here who are part of this church family and they're struggling financially, I would hope that, that we would help them with all wisdom and humility. But more likely, I think that there are other greater needs, people who are struggling in their relationships, people who have lost loved ones, people who are suffering and alone, people who are struggling to live as a Christian. Be easier to ignore them, wouldn't it? I mean, we've got our own problems. You know, my my biggest fear in in terms of evangelicalism in Scotland and and for myself is that, that we have this pursuit of comfort over anything else. And not only will that give us an apathetic approach to God and a kind of lackness to do mission, but it gives us an apathetic approach towards each other. I know that person's in need, but I don't have time at the moment. I'm just too busy. I I need to take care of me. I need to take care of my family first. We just walk on by and leave them because our comforts and our needs are more important. Well, thank God that Jesus didn't have that attitude towards us or none of us would be saved. It's costly. That's the point. That's the point. It, It will cost you It will cost your time. It will cost your money. It will cost your ambition. It will cost your comfort. If it's not costly, it's probably not neighborly love. And often our response, often my response to need is not love, but irritation. Let me say as well, if we think about how we love those who don't don't follow Jesus, remember we've got to love everyone. There's no boundary to this love. We need to do so in a way that is described here, in that kind of compassionate, kind way that the Samaritan has. But we must also recognize that the most loving thing we can do for people is tell them about Jesus and his gospel, which is why this passage comes immediately after teaching on mission and immediately before Jesus' teaching on how important it is to listen to him. We must recognize that is the most loving thing we can do, telling others about Jesus and his gospel. And if all you do is show compassion to people without talking about the gospel, again, I don't think you love your neighbor as yourself. You love your reputation. You don't want to be embarrassed. If you loved them, you would want them to respond to the gospel because without the gospel, they will spend an eternity away from Jesus in hell. And we want to warn people of that. And when you do, that will be costly. Maybe not always. Maybe some people will respond. But for some people, it could be costly. And it means you could lose, potentially, some friendships or some relationships. But again, if you are loving them selflessly, if you are showing them compassion, if you are caring for them, that gives a steel and an authenticity to the gospel message when you proclaim it. We worship a compassionate God, and our lives should be marked with the same compassion that He has shown us. Thirdly, finally, loving your neighbor is continual. 
There's no end to this command. Uh, Look at how the Samaritan goes above and beyond the call of duty here. He he tends the man's wounds with with oil and wine. He walks whilst the man is carried on uh, his animal. He takes him to the inn to make sure that he is cared for. Look at the the little detail that Jesus puts in at the end of verse 35 uh, in his story, in which the Samaritan says this to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He wants to continually care for this person. It's not just a one-off. It's not just, well, you know, I've helped him. I've, I've done my part. It's a staggering display of persistent love. It's a por- great portrait of mercy. It never ends. It's not about passing the buck, but it's how can I do the best that I can for this person? And that kind of love is profound, that continual love and compassion for people. That gives a great backbone to the gospel that we proclaim. You know, let me tell you a story. There's a, I've got a friend who's a minister in the city here um, who had an incredibly tough upbringing. He was actually in jail for attempted murder um, and was involved in all, all sorts of horrible things and, and drugs and so forth. Um, and he came into contact with a church Um, when he was relatively young. And the Christians in that church um, were very clear with him. They they used to play football with him. They used to show him kindness and compassion, but they were very clear in what the gospel was about. And they said to him, you know, without Jesus, you're going to hell. And they told him that time and time again. They cared for him. And continually, even though he would mock them and he would make fun of them, he actually would even slash their tires, uh, and he, he just thought they were crazy, they kept coming back and kept caring for him and kept looking out for him. Even when he was in jail, they, they went and visited him. And it was a kind of love, I guess, that, that he had never really seen before. And because they were so persistent in their love of him, and because he could see that their actions matched their words, what they told him, he gave his life to Jesus. He's now a minister in this city, and he's responsible for setting up a church planting network to some of the poorest areas in Scotland. This kind of love is profound. This kind of love is difficult. And we'll never fully get there. We've never got this sussed. I can't even love my wife and my family. I can't even love my friends in this way, never mind everyone. And yet this is what we must strive for. So let me close by asking, how can we do this? Look in verses um, 36 and 37, look at how Jesus kind of flips it around a little bit here. He changes the initial question. The initial question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus comes back and says, who proved to be the neighbor? The lawyer who can't even bear to say the word Samaritan says the one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus changes the question. Jesus says to him, well, go and do likewise. And he changes the question from what kind of person is my neighbor to who am I? The question is not who is my neighbor, rather it's how can I be a neighbor? Go and do it. That's what he asks for us and that's what disciples of Jesus are to strive for. How then can I give the sacrificial, unconditional love that Jesus requires of his disciples? And there's only one way You have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength first. 
And the way we do that is by looking to Jesus himself. It's only by understanding the love that he has for you. If you trust him, then you will be transformed to be like him. He tells the story as, as Jesus has, has set his face towards Jerusalem to achieve the ultimate act of love and salvation through his death on the cross. This parable is a great description of how Jesus rescued us because the truth is, in terms of our relationship with God, we are like this beaten up man lying on the side of the road, beaten, naked, lost. There's no hope for us. And we can try and and justify ourselves all we want, but we have fallen infinitely short of God's standards and we are under God's judgment and wrath. Utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. No religiosity will help us, but it's Jesus who comes and rescues us. He crosses the barriers. Even when we were his enemies, he loved us. He is the ultimate example of unconditional love. There was nothing in us that was desirable, nothing that was worth saving, and yet he did it. He did it at the greatest cost. Because in order to save us from our sins, Jesus had to take them upon himself. He had to take the anger of God upon his own shoulders. And as he was crucified, Jesus chose to be punished by God so that we would never have to be, so that we could be saved. The cross is the ultimate example of costly love. And because he has done that, we are eternally forgiven, eternally loved, adopted into God's family as his children. See, the gospel is the ultimate example of continual love. The love of God shown through Christ, it is the most radical the most unique, the most compassionate, unconditional, costly, and continual expression of love that has ever been shown. And the only way you can ever be saved is not by justifying yourself, but by looking at how Jesus has justified you through that cross. The only way you can ever love your neighbor in this kind of way, the only way you can ever love your neighbor like this is by understanding first his love for us and loving him in response with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this amazing, amazing teaching, so familiar to us. And yet, Father, when we go over it, when we examine it, we just see how incredible it is. We see the standard that you have set Jesus, that impossibly high standard, and yet you have not set that standard to try and control us, to make us feel afraid and guilty because we can't achieve it. You set it so we would know just how far short we fall of it, so that we would trust in you and not ourselves, so that we would look to be justified by you and not by ourselves. And you've set the standard so that we can strive for it, so that we can try more and more to be like you, Jesus. Help us then to to have this kind of love. Everyone around us, our colleagues, our family, our workmates, our course mates, our friends, our neighbors, anyone we come into contact with, anyone who's in need, Help us to be selfless.
and utterly compassionate. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel, to stand up for the truth of the gospel, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, for we know we're on mission. But Father, may our actions give steel and authenticity to our words. Father, help us, we pray, to love you. That's what we want. We want to love you with every aspect of our being. We want our our whole hearts, our emotions, our intellect, our will, everything to be geared and loved towards you so that we can be more loving to our neighbor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.